The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I mean, the military story over time has been very complicated in terms of who has the upper hand, who has the, the initiative. I think in part, uh, the story of foreign intervention tells us a lot about the way that the conflict has, has evolved. Uh, I think Hillary is absolutely right to note that. Uh, but it's been an absolutely, more generally, I just say it's been an absolutely brutal conflict. I mean, the humanitarian costs are astonishing. Uh, the human rights costs are, are astonishing. And the harm that's been meted out to civilians, really extraordinary. I mean, uh, all parties appear to have committed mass atrocities of, in, in some shape or form. Um, in Tigray, as we speak, uh, millions uh, are living in famine-like conditions. You know, it certainly doesn't help that there's, a, there's a, an effective humanitarian blockade of, of that entire region. So it is a, a bleak scenario in terms of the human consequences of this conflict. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for December 8th, 2021. For the past year, the country of Ethiopia has been embroiled in a brutal civil war. At the center of it is Tigray, a region that has played a prominent role in the evolution of Ethiopia's modern ethno-federalist state. Just weeks ago, rebels seemed to be on the verge of seizing the capital city of Addis Ababa, leading foreign governments to urge their nationals to evacuate the country as soon as possible. Today, the city remains in government hands, and rebel forces appear to be on the retreat, though how long they will stay that way is anyone's guess. To put this dynamic conflict in context and give us a sense of where it may be headed, I spoke to two leading experts. Professor Michael Woldemariam of the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University, and Professor Hilary Matfis of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. We discussed the origins of Ethiopia's ongoing civil war, what it's meant for civilians living there, and how it might shape the country's future. It's the Lawfare Podcast for December 8th, making sense of the crisis in Ethiopia. Michael, let me turn to you first, because for the last several months, really more than a year at this point, folks who follow international affairs, follow developments in Africa, have been reading a lot about the Tigray region in Ethiopia, which is integral to this crisis that's kind of consumed the country, the civil war for the past 14 months or so. Tell us a little bit about the Tigray region and how it fits into the broader Ethiopian political picture so as to give it the central role in this emerging crisis. Sure. Thanks, uh, Scott, uh, for having us. Um, So Ethiopia is an ethno-federal state, and Tigray is one of of the ethno-federal regions. So it's nestled in in the north of the country. And so, you know, to to the west, Tigray's western border is is bound with Sudan, and to the north uh, is Eritrea. Um, which uh, had been part of Ethiopia up until 1991, was a, was Ethiopia's coastal province. Tigray is a numerically not not a huge region, about six, seven, eight million people, about six, seven percent of, of Ethiopia's overall population. But it has played a, a pretty important role historically in, in Ethiopian state building, uh, state formation, and that that goes back hundreds of years. But to bring it up to the present, um, Ethiopia goes through a pretty significant political transformation in 1991. So Marxist uh, regime had governed the country between 1974 and 1991. And and that that Marxist regime was ousted in 1991 by a coalition of rebel groups. And the most powerful actor in that rebel coalition uh, was a group called the Tigray People's Liberation Front. 
So this was a, a politically a Tigrayan a nationalist organization that sought to reshape the Ethiopian state. And this idea of ethnic federalism, uh, where power, authority, governance uh, would be devolved to ethnically identified regions was ideologically really the, the project that the TPLF and its allies sought to build. So from 1991 up until 2018, a really long period of time, the TPLF and grand political elites have really been at the epicenter or the apex of, of, of Ethiopian politics. They, they, they're small in number, geographically uh, not, a, not a huge region, but, but politically Tigray has been quite important uh, to Ethiopian politics. Hillary, go ahead. Yeah. Thanks again for having us. Really looking forward to this conversation. One thing I'd add is that the TPLF, as Mike mentioned, was kind of one of the ascendant or leading rebel groups that helped depose the Marxist dictatorship that ran the country. And from that position, it actually oversaw the institution of what we see as like the modern Ethiopian political system, which it's worth noting that this system of ethno-federalism was introduced or instituted during the drafting of of the constitution in the mid-1990s, which was a process that was heavily influenced by the TPLF itself. So the Tigray People's Liberation Front played a really integral role in forming the political institutions that governed Ethiopia up until relatively recently. So the TPLF is just one group of a number of groups that were representing different ethnic identities and other identities uh, in Ethiopia during this kind of state formation period, maybe not state formation, but government formation period. What characteristics, what about the TPLF allowed it to play this oversized role, despite being representing a relatively small part of the country, both geographically and population-wise? It's, it's a good question, Scott. I think the, the simple answer to that question is, is military capacity, right? You know, by the time that, that the Ethiopian civil war kind of reaches its critical stage in the late 1980s, the TPLF, uh, along with uh, the armed nationalist fronts in Eritrea, so a group called the EPLF, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, these were really the dominant military forces in the anti-government camp. I mean, the, the TPLF had got its start uh, with Eritrean support in the mid-1970s, had gradually built its military capacity, mobilized its population, and that's a, a long story, but but was really in a position where they could shape the politics of that coalition you know, as the war uh, reached uh, its final stages. And, and I think an important issue here to understand is that the Eritreans decide to go their own way in 1991, right? So had the Eritreans stayed a part of, of Ethiopia, its nationalist front might have actually been the dominant force or maybe balanced TPLF power in terms of, you know, how the country was governed and sort of shaping its subsequent political arrangements. But it really is a question of military capacity, I think. I absolutely agree with Mike's points on that. Um, and if anyone's interested in learning more about the kind of convoluted relationship between the TPLF and the EPLF during the war, in addition to Mike's phenomenal work, Jonathan Fisher recently published a book about this um, titled East Africa After Liberation. But another point I just want to emphasize is, is the integral role that the TPLF played in forming the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, or the EPRDF, which was the dominant political party in the country. Uh, the EPRDF uh, was composed of a variety of ethno-regional political parties, and it began as a, a wartime coalition between the TPLF, between, uh, I believe, Amharan armed groups, and the Oromo contingent was initially composed of Oromo prisoners of war that the TPLF had taken, at least according to some of the reporting that I've read. Even from the, the sort of beginning of the EPRDF, we see the way in which the TPLF played an outsized role because of its military capacity, as Mike was saying. Yeah, ju just to add, I think Hillary's made some excellent points. I mean, in the case, so the EPRDF was was a coalition of, of four alliance partners, and it's absolutely the case uh, uh, that uh, the OPDO was kind of invented, the Oromo wing of that coalition was really invented sort of out of whole cloth by by the TPLF. They put it together with with uh, POWs 
you know, the Amhara wing of, of the EPRDF um, had deeper origins, had its own sort of separate history, but it, it simply didn't have the military capacity of, of the TPLF and, and the same for, for the wing of the ruling party that came from the southern regions. Hillary, let me turn to you with this next question, because I want to get a better sense of what this ethno-federalist model looked like. How did the TPLF and its associated groups that you know kind of played a foundational role in forming at the national level, what sorts of bundles of rights were being devolved down to local groups? What was the vision of that relationship between these states that had more specific identities and the national state? And how does that relate to the distribution of power? And in particular, I'm curious about distribution of military power and security of forces. Were these armed groups involved in this revolution able to retain a substantial amount of uh, military force? Is that part of what's facilitated this more recent civil war? Or was there an effort to actually kind of nationalize the monopoly on the use of force, which many people associate as kind of a, a hallmark of uh, modern statehood, although one that's that's rarely exists in any sort of like pure form? Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot in that question. And so I'll start with just the caveat, right, that the the style of governance laid out in the Constitution with the ethno-federal system and the devolution of power to the states is different on paper than it was in practice, right? So if you're if you're taking a very like legalistic approach to what Ethiopian governance was supposed to look like, I think it looks quite different than what it was in practice. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the TPLF was the dominant force in the country, despite the fact that politically its its mandate was to represent the population of Tigray, which as Mike has already discussed, is not a, a particularly large segment of the population. There are a number of articles, journalistic accounts, human rights reports that discuss the way in which the TPLF through the EPRDF leveraged the power of the state, the benefits of the state, in order to cultivate at least some degree of, of loyalty or cooperation throughout the country, which certainly I think you can say undermines uh, attempts towards you know, actual ethno-federal democracy. It's also worth noting that following the the 2005 election in which the EPRDF experienced its most significant challenge to power, the party led the country through uh, quite a degree of democratic backsliding and the institutionalization of, of some of the more authoritarian tendencies of the regime. Now, with regards to the security sector, um, which I think is one of the the specific areas that is important to focus on here, I do think it is worth noting that there was an effort following the war that ended in 1991 when the EPRDF took uh, the capital to have a sort of DDR program and and a more representative federal uh, military than what it would have been had the TPLF merely become the country's military force. In my experience, a number of the female veterans that I talked to discussed how this tended to disadvantage female veterans. Um, So it wasn't necessarily a a process that sought to have a federal army that looked more like the gender distribution of the country. Um, But it does reflect sort of the the power balancing that the TPLF and the EPRDF needed to do in that transition period. So at the state level, there are two dynamics that I think are important for understanding the context of the civil war today. Uh, And the first is the sort of formal security sector affiliated at the state level. The second are the informal militias uh, that have accompanied this as well. So when we're examining, say, um, Amharan participation in the conflict in Tigray, we have both, you know, the Amhara special forces, a, a formal state affiliated security force, as well as informal ethnic militias. In Amhara, for example, the Fano have played a significant role in this. And this sort of mixture of security forces presents a really significant issue for control over these forces and for accountability for some of the human rights violations that we've seen. 
Yes, uh, just just to add, I mean, I think you know the important thing to understand about sort of ethnic federalism in Ethiopia uh, from 1991 onwards is, and I think Hillary just again described this well, is that you had kind of the architecture of ethnic federalism, kind of the formal apparatus of ethnic federalism, but you didn't really have devolution uh, to the regions in practice in reality. I mean, I think there was there were gains to Ethiopia's various nations and nationalities in the cultural domain, for instance. You know, but if we talk about political devolution, that wasn't a, a reality. Power was was largely concentrated in the center, dominated by the ruling party and, and particularly by the TPLF. And and I think one key mechanism uh, through which the ruling party and the TPLF sustained its its dominance, control over the regions was was really in the security sector, and so the TPLF was was particularly influential, I think, in in the ENDF, Ethiopian National Defense Forces, in the intelligence, even as they they tried to bring uh, other groups into uh, these institutions. At the end of the day, I think they were the most formidable uh, power and, and influencer. So I think that's just something to underscore. And certainly, uh, you know, things, the, the, the security structures of, of the country have begun to, to shift and change in recent years. And this, as, as Hillary again notes, has fed into the, the civil war. You know, the fact of the matter is regional uh, security forces, both um, formal and informal, are increasingly uh, prominent uh, in the country's uh, security politics. So, Michael, you've already mentioned that this kind of TPLF-dominated regime lasted from 1991 until 2018. And that at that time, a big shift comes into Ethiopian politics that in a lot of ways tees up some of the tensions we're seeing play out today. Tell us how this shift came about and what the kind of status quo, how the status quo shifted as a result of those developments. Sure. So... Again, understand the you know the the EPRDF was a coalition of of four distinct parties, and and while the TPLF was the dominant one, these other parties had their own interests, their own agency, their own constituencies, and so essentially, what happens is this really begins to evolve in 2012 after Ethiopian Prime Minister Meles Zenawi dies. He had been sort of the preeminent figure in EPRDF politics. I mean, when he dies, that unleashes, um, and it wasn't apparent initially, but it, it became apparent over time, unleashes a power struggle uh, within uh, the ruling party between these different ethno-political coalition members. And that power struggle is fueled in many ways by a rising tide of popular resistance. So there is a protest movement in the Oromo region of Ethiopia, particularly amongst Oromo youth, that is then followed by the diffusion of those protests to the Amhara region that is sort of reinforcing the, the internal political struggle within the ruling party. There's also a rising violence uh, of ethnic nature across the country as well. And so there's a real, I think, crisis of confidence uh, within the ruling party by about 2017. In 2018, uh, the sitting Prime Minister Haile Mariam de Salen uh, resigns uh, because of all of this sort of political pressure, the political tumult. And there is a struggle within the ruling party, as, as you would anticipate, given what had happened in preceding years, about who would replace him. Um, and through a lot of intra-party maneuvering, Abiy Ahmed is selected as, as prime minister, as a new prime minister. And that that is really, that puts in motion forces of dynamism, of change, and disruption that I think in some ways uh, have led uh, to the to the conflict uh, that we're now seeing. Yeah, so I agree with everything Mike said. And I would also just point out that there was this real sense of optimism um, that in retrospect, I think, can come across as a bit naive about what the rise of Abiy Ahmed meant for Ethiopian politics. Um and so this reform agenda that Abi came in promoting this shift away uh, from the TPLF style rule towards this concept of Medimer, which caught a lot of international attention as, as being a new political philosophy. It was accompanied by something that I think is less remarked upon, but perhaps even more significant, which is a shift away from this ethno-federal system of rule that the country had been governed by 
definitely imperfectly, but at least legally since 1995, towards pan-Ethiopianism. And that was part of the the reform and the ideology underlying the introduction of the Prosperity Party, uh, which I imagine we'll, we'll discuss uh, a little bit more throughout this podcast. Yeah, and, and just to, to add, I think, you know, it is absolutely, I think, right and appropriate to underscore how much optimism uh, there was in, in the early days of Abiy's uh, tenure. Uh, there were sweeping political reforms uh, that really liberalized political space, right? Uh, exiled opposition groups were brought back home. Political prisoners were released. There was a revision of some, some more sort of rep- repressive aspects of the country's legal architecture. I mean, one one could go on and on. There were also some important economic reforms that were put on the table. So yeah, I think the, the first, really the first year of, of Abbey's time in office was, was one of incredible change. And, and I think I think optimism, but of course, uh, there were some serious challenges that, that that had to be addressed. Well, so Hillary, let me turn to you for this this part of the story here, because of course we see this new government come in, but then it pretty quickly comes under strain and pressure from a number of different directions. Part of which, at least, comes at a certain point in the context of the challenge that many nations have faced the last two years, which is the global coronavirus pandemic. Tell us about how the last few years, the tensions, the pressures, the challenges that are facing this new set of leaders began to tee up some underlying discontent and fed again to this kind of outbreak of tension and violence. Sure. Um, Not to be too pithy, but I guess one of the most significant challenges facing the new leaders is the continued prominence of so many of the old leaders. Um, so Abiy Ahmed came to power as the prime minister through the EPRDF. And his introduction of the Prosperity Party was not met with universal acclaim. In the introduction of the Prosperity Party and the TPLF's decision not to join the Prosperity Party, we see seeds of the conflict that broke out in Tigray in November 2020. So I think it it is absolutely incredibly difficult to sort of describe or summarize the range of challenges and fissures uh, that emerge in in the months and years after Abiy takes office. I I think the the best way to think about this is to say that many of the power struggles uh, and rivalries that had in some way set the stage uh, for Abiy's rise themselves were not were not resolved um, once once he took office, right? And that they sort of took new forms uh, and new directions, and eventually sort of fed in fed into the disastrous conflict that the country is 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 now in. So, I've talked about the intra-party rivalries within the EPRDF that increase and become more acute um, after Abiy takes office, and the, the centerpiece of that, of course, is is a rivalry between Abiy, his allies within the party, and uh, and the TPLF and some of the allies that they had throughout uh, the party apparatus. And so that was a battle that uh, fundamentally, at least initially, was about control of the Ethiopian state, the federal state, the federal government. And then later on, it took the form of a kind of contest between the federal government and Tigray regional state. But what makes these political struggles even more complex is that new actors, because of the liberalization of political space, new actors are brought into the system. Right, so a number of important Oromo political parties are, are mobilized and, and seek to pursue uh, their own interests and the interests of, of their constituents as they, as they see them. There are a number of armed groups that had been based abroad that that re-enter the country. Some of them uh, choose not not to demobilize. In the case of of factions of the Oromo Liberation Army, and so they become active in the western parts of the country. They are a key part of, of the drama in the current conflict. And and I think what's important to, to also understand is that these political struggles take on a very, very pernicious ethnic and ideological component. So part of what's at stake are, of course, you know, the, the political interests of these different entities, but but really this question of what should the future Ethiopian state look like and 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 how, and this is an enduring question in Ethiopian politics, how should Ethiopia's you know ethnic diversity uh, be reconciled. You know, the the TPLF's answer and the answer of its ethno-federalist allies, including many 
not allies, but many actors in the Oromo community and on the periphery of, of Ethiopia is, is that the answer must be one that involves ethno-federalism. But there are many sections and strata of Ethiopian society that would dispute this and think ethnic federalism is, is not the appropriate way to go. So that is that is kind of a, a very short and brief way of, of describing some of the, the political fissures that emerge as, as Abbi takes over. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. 
Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I, I agree 100%, and that was such a searing and, and really helpful description of some of these tensions. I would just add that in many cases, these debates are not theoretical and they're not only playing out in sort of political debate and political discourse. If I recall correctly, in the past few years, prior to the, the outbreak of the war in Tigray, we saw a surge in communal violence. So we saw kind of increasing violence along ethnic lines. These were not merely questions about what perhaps the best political system would be, but were oftentimes matters of life or death. And we've seen a number of elite political players really playing up some of these ethno-federalist sentiments in order to obtain or maintain political power, at least at the regional level. Uh, And that's a dynamic that's obviously a challenge for any government to, to manage is the outbreak of communal violence, internal conflict, but also it would be particularly difficult for a political leader trying to implement a system of kind of pan-Ethiopian rule that overrides ethnic federalism to find a way to manage these, these very pressing and sometimes violent manifestations of ethnic political identification. And if I could just interject uh, briefly, just because I, I think it's one thing your your listeners also need to understand, you know that the you know the political struggle in Ethiopia as it's evolved in recent years is is in many ways about this question of ethnic federalism. What is the relationship between the center and 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 the regions, right? Uh, and these and Ethiopia's nations and nationalities, you know. But there are also very important differences and cleavages between the nations and nationalities, uh, oftentimes over over this contentious issue of territory. And so that that is something. The boundaries of these of these ethno federal states are contested uh, in many parts of the country. And so that's also something that's driving uh, that's driving the violence. I just want to put that on the table. So in November twenty twenty. We see the first big signs that this is becoming a serious domestic conflict, if not a civil war. Low-scale violence becomes actually mobilized military forces. And since then, really, for the last year and change, um, we've seen the sustained competing military operations between the central Ethiopian government, the Tigrayan forces, other people involved uh, as well on one side or the other. Give us a little bit of the sense of how this conflict has evolved and its current state of play. It's kind of, we hit a bit of a fervor actually a couple of weeks ago when there were a lot of reports about rebels preparing to take Addis Ababa, the capital, which is a major city with a lot of regional and national significance. That appears to have tapered out. You know, recent news reports are saying that the government has actually made some progress in pushing rebel forces back. But I think facts are still fluid on the ground. So, uh, Hillary, why don't you take us through that a little bit? Tell us a, a little bit about how this conflict has evolved since last November and what we should be looking at with it moving forward. Absolutely. So it should be said at the top that one of the most frustrating aspects of trying to follow this conflict, aside from you know the, the pain of having to contend with so much of the human rights abuses and, and that have manifested in this conflict is the fact that there's been a really significant effort to implement and maintain an information blackout from the region. And that's been a trend nearly from the start of this conflict and has become all the more acute in recent weeks as the government appears to now be trying to limit what information can be reported out about the war, even in areas where there's still internet connectivity which makes it really difficult to get a sense of what the situation on the ground is. This is made all the more frustrating and all the more difficult by some of the the efforts at mis- and disinformation online that have emerged both on the Tigrayan side and on the government side. But what we do know 
is that it is an internationalized conflict. Um, despite the fact that Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed initially denied the participation of Eritreans in the war in Tigray, there was significant Eritrean presence on the ground in Tigray. Um, and of the reporting that we've been able to get out of Tigray, the Eritrean forces have been implicated in in some of the most galling human rights abuses, including the use of, of sexual violence against women and girls in the region, um, including gang rapes and mass rapes. In addition to the kind of internationalization of the conflict via Eritrean participation, we've also seen recently kind of a, a full-scale nationalization of the conflict in Tigray. Um, so whereas forces from the neighboring Amhara region were involved quite early in the conflict as well. Uh, I believe a, a few months ago, forces from non-neighboring non regions in the country were sent to participate in the effort. In addition to the participation of formal state uh, security forces in this conflict, we've also seen the mobilization of informal security forces. And some of these forces including the Samari, which is a Tigrayan youth militia, and Fano, which is an Amharan youth militia, have been implicated in some really troubling human rights abuses in the course of the conflict. So we have a situation now in which you have just a plethora of veto players, all of whom are pursuing their own kind of interests with respect to the conflict in Tigray. And I think Something that's not often discussed in the popular coverage of this war is the way in which having so many um, political and security actors involved in this conflict will make it really difficult to come to a durable political solution. It's not merely getting the Tigrayan forces or the federal forces at the negotiating table. It involves contending with the interests of these regional militias, with the federal government, the Eritreans, and these informal militias in addition to the, the Tigrayan forces. You know, I think this war has had militarily some pretty, some pretty wild swings. You know, in, in the early phase of the conflict, so, you know, November, December, January, the Tigrayans were really on the back foot. You know, the, the federal government, its Eritrean allies, associated allied Amhara militia, um, really seemed to have militarily the upper hand. They took pretty much every urban area, large town, in Tigray, the TPLF, its leadership, its military assets, you know, fled uh, to rural areas and, and launched insurgency. They gradually recovered over a period of months, successfully expelled the kind of allied coalition against them from Tigray. Um, this happened in June, early July of this year, and then launched their own military offensive into neighboring regions, into neighboring Afar and Amhara regions, and, and had quite a bit of success uh, for a period of time. Um, and now in, in recent weeks, it appears that, that the government now has stopped that offensive and has launched its own counteroffensive. So just a, a really, I mean, the military story over time has been very complicated in terms of who has the upper hand, who has the, the initiative. I think in part, uh, the story of foreign intervention tells us a lot about the way that the conflict has has evolved. Uh, I think Hillary is absolutely right to note that. Uh, but it's been an absolutely, more generally, I just say it's been an absolutely brutal conflict. I mean, the humanitarian costs are astonishing. Uh, the human rights costs are, are astonishing. The harm that's been meted out to civilians really extraordinary. I mean, uh, all parties appear to have committed mass atrocities of, in, in some shape or form. Um, in Tigray, as we speak, uh, millions uh, are living in famine-like conditions you know, it certainly doesn't help that that's a, there's a, an effective humanitarian blockade of, of that entire region. So it is a, a bleak scenario in terms of the human consequences of this conflict. What is the impact been on the nation as a whole? Because I, I think folks who have dealt with uh, regional diplomacy development might know this, but the broader kind of listening audience might not. Certainly, at least Addis Ababa, in a lot of ways, Ethiopia more generally it has been kind of a hub for a lot of regional activities for a long time, in part because of kind of a degree of perceived stability and not to mention geographic location, the city itself being, you know, a, a fairly major city. Obviously, this is coming off the back of the global pandemic where almost every country's economy has suffered significantly. But what has the impact of the conflict been on kind of the day-to-day -day life of 
Ethiopians and the broader Ethiopian economy that's sustaining that life. Hillary, I'll turn to you first on that. You know, at least in the beginning of the conflict, I I think there was a sense of distance. And this is a little bit ironic for me to say, speaking from Denver and feeling quite distant from the conflict myself. But one thing that has to be noted is as a part of this nationalization campaign, you know, Abiy Ahmed has been galvanizing support uh, for the war throughout the country. He himself has now reportedly gone to the front lines. I think this is no longer something that can be regarded as a conflict sort of that's distant and not consequential for the, the lives of Ethiopians. I think it's now much more difficult to ignore. Another thing I would point out is that we have pretty credible reports of systemic arrests of Tigrayans in the capital city. And that speaks to the the possibility of systemic ethnic discrimination that Tigrayans are facing in the country, which obviously means that it's not just Tigrayans in Tigray that are suffering from this conflict, but also throughout the country. The only other thing that I, I would add is, you know, I think that the major concern, you know, around this war, well, there are many concerns, but there has been a fundamental worry that Ethiopia is in the midst of extreme state fragility and that the collapse of, of the Ethiopian state, I mean, full collapse is is one potential uh, possibility. Um, and a lot of it has to do with some of what Hillary described earlier, which is, uh, you know, the proliferation of the means of violence across the country, the mobilization of militia, oftentimes on, on, a, on an identity or ethnic basis in various parts of the country. This creates a context in which, you know, you could have kind of disorder uh, across the board. And so I think that is, you know, that has, particularly as the armed opposition coalition advanced, uh, seemed to advance on the capital. I mean, that sort of scenario was was one that, that many people were worried about, particularly in the international community. And I would, I, I would imagine, or I know many Ethiopians as well had this particular concern. You know, but when you have this level of extreme state fragility, there are all kinds of knock-on effects, economic, humanitarian, Obviously, the economic situation in, in the country is grim. Other crises are not taking a break. We've mentioned COVID. The country also has long-term you know, concerns around food security. Locusts uh, were an issue recently. So this is all, there's kind of a toxic brew of, of different crises that are exacerbating uh, you know, the overall fragility of the Ethiopian state. So what has the reaction thus far been from both the regional community and the broader international community? Many of whom, at least, you know, again, are are familiar certainly with with Ethiopia, have operated there in some regards, have seen their own operations curtailed substantially. I know at least the United States uh, has has evacuated a good chunk of its embassy personnel, or did, and maybe they may be back now um, when the city was under threat. So it's very much on people's radar. We've seen some murmurs of engagement, but what sort of actual concerted strategy have we seen moving forward to try and reach some sort of resolution or stability to this conflict? Uh, Michael, I'll start with you. Sure. So the international community's response to the crisis ha- has evolved considerably. When the war in Tigray started um, in November, there wasn't much concerted international response. Uh, the Trump administration, for various reasons, was sort of hands off and, uh, and and was not particularly engaged. You know, the African Union early on did deploy or attempt to deploy um, a number of kind of high-profile dignitaries to try and get a mediation process going, but they were rebuffed uh, by by the Ethiopian government. Um, And the Ethiopian government at this stage generally rebuffed every effort to promote negotiation or a political solution. And uh, of course, they had uh, the militarily, militarily the upper hand at that point. And so, you know, I think for that reason, efforts to kind of broker, broker a political solution pretty much were on hold at that point. Then the Biden administration comes in at the beginning of this year and really treats the, the crisis in Ethiopia as, as a central concern. Uh, and so their efforts are really focused around a couple of different issues, uh, finding a political solution to the crisis, uh, obtaining humanitarian access to Tigray and other affected regions, and then dealing with the problem of, of mass atrocities and accountability for those atrocities. So it takes a much more aggressive diplomatic approach. There are many, many different things that, that happen uh, 
you know, engagement with, with the, with the parties to the conflict at senior levels. I mean, uh, Secretary Blinken, you know, USAID Administrator Samantha Power actually goes to Ethiopia. The Biden administration deploys Senator Chris Coons as, as an envoy uh, to try and get a political process going. The United States also threatens uh, punitive measures in the form of sanctions uh, and things of that nature, although it's taken them some time uh, to actually um, actualize that, that component of their strategy and, and put in place punitive measures. They have implo- uh, deployed punitive measures, sanctions, uh, sanctions, uh, sanctions on uh, Eritrean actors, uh, but beyond travel bans, uh, there really hasn't been much uh, deployed uh, against Ethiopian actors. Ethiopia's AGOA privileges could be suspended. I think that's on the table uh, at the moment. So, so I think that's that's where we sit. And these international efforts have not been particularly successful. I think the United States, along with its European allies, trying to work very hard uh, with African actors, African stakeholders, the African Union, the Kenyans, uh, and, and to try and collaborate with them to get some sort of political process going. So that's pretty much where we sit. We've gone from this evolution of sort of not much engagement to real to a real focus on this issue, and I think part of the reason for this is that the conflict itself has metastasized and become so much worse, right, in terms of its its humanitarian human rights uh, implications. Yeah, I would add to that as well. We've seen the African Union, you know, deploy former President Obasanjo to try and help mediate an agreement. But there's also been pressure from the international humanitarian community to try and end the de facto humanitarian blockade in Tigray to address the humanitarian catastrophe and famine conditions that are being reported out of the region. But as Mike said, you know, these efforts have been largely ineffective. Um, and a few months ago, I, I believe UN staff or some of the UN staff were even you know, expelled from the country. So it's a situation in which throughout kind of the evolution of the international community's approach to this issue, the international community still hasn't been able to really cultivate political will to come to a negotiated settlement or to draw down the fighting. Uh, at least as far as I've seen. Yeah. And and just to add, I mean, one could debate sort of the approach of the international community to, you know, to this particular crisis. And are they pulling the right levers, you know, using the right combination of, of carrots and sticks? I mean, I think much of the challenge, though, has been with the parties themselves, right? I mean, the sort of trend you see in this conflict is when one side is up, they're signaling around this conflict is that they're not interested in in, uh, in a peaceful political solution. And then when the other side is is up, it's, you know, the, the script changes and, and now they're no longer interested in a political solution. And so it's it's difficult. But we are at a, at a point where I think most rational people, including, you know, in the adversarial camps themselves, I think must realize that there probably is no military solution to this conflict, right? I mean, that much is obvious uh, a year into this. We're getting close to the end of our time, but I want to close with one last question for for each of you, and that is, you know, where do you see the trajectory of this conflict going from here? Is there a path towards a more reasonable solution, uh, whether a ceasefire or something more enduring uh, in the near to medium term? And where does that leave Ethiopia as a state? What kind of end state are we are we likely to see coming out of this sort of conflict? I know those predictions can be hard to uh, put forward, but uh, I think you all are in a good position to give us a sense about wh- where the baseline expectations should be moving forward and where there may be avenues to encourage a particular outcome or another. Michael, why don't I start with you? Yeah, it's inherently difficult uh, question, I think, to answer. I think in part what you know the formula for peace, what the formula for peace looks like for a negotiated ceasefire is in part going to be shaped by military circumstances on the ground. You know, the prime minister himself has said that that his goal is to remove Tigrayan forces from the Amhara and Afar region. You know, and at that point, if he's able to achieve that, then there's no guarantee he will. But if he is, you know, it's it's worth asking whether he'll be interested in in, in actually engaging in, in a political process. Possibly it's it's hard to say. You know, I think ultimately you need to think about peace, really, whatever the, the formula for this is, you need to think about it on two levels. I mean, first is a narrow negotiate ceasefire between the parties, 
um, that involves a, a number of different elements, mutual recognition, a plan for dealing with some of the territorial disputes that are at the root of this particular conflict. But then uh, I think you need a, a broader national conversation because Ethiopia's troubles run much deeper than uh, this conflict between the federal government's allies and political elites in Tigray. You know, there are, you know, the Oromo uh, political class, obviously, and its constituents obviously need to be consulted, need to be part of conversation. So there needs to be a broader national dialogue about the future of Ethiopian state, about a roadmap uh, to get to more competitive democratic uh, processes. I mean, Ethiopia had an election recently, a few months back, that was not was not really a model, I think, for what democratic politics can and should be in Ethiopia. So again, we need to think about peace in terms of a narrow formula for this particular crisis, but then something bigger for the country. Yeah, I, I echo basically everything that Mike said. But I'd also point out, you know, as I, as I was saying earlier, the introduction of so many different security forces, formal, informal, national, international, in this conflict, I think to me means that we can't expect one political settlement to address all of these issues. And so if you're asking for prognostication, you know, part of me just definitely doesn't want to do it because it's been such a, a dynamic conflict that's so difficult to predict. But one thing I would say would be that even if a political agreement were brokered between the Tigrayan forces and the federal forces, you'd still likely have to contend with other fronts in the war, other conflicts between other armed groups that are involved in this conflict. Um, and so I would encourage policymakers and analysts of the situation to think more about what political settlements or agreements, plural, would be necessary to help draw down this violence. Because I, I find it difficult to imagine what type of settlement it would take to draw all of the fighting to a close in this conflict. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there. Michael, Hillary, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and share the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. To gain access to our weekly Lawfare Live online discussions, an ad-free version of our podcast and other benefits, please consider supporting Lawfare on our Patreon account at www.patreon.com lawfare. This podcast was engineered by Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.